Welcome back to Troubleshooting Agile. This is Jeff Frederick, and I'm joined for a third and fantastic, you know, third time pace for all, Gene Kim, uh, author of uh, Wiring the Winning Organization, here to share with us the, the last two elements of the, the playbook that they put together, this amazing framework. Gene, uh, thank you again for coming back, and uh, so good to have you back. Oh, are you kidding me? Uh, Jeffrey, it's always amazing hanging out with you. I learn so much every time we have an interaction. <laughs> well, it's me too. It's just, you know, it's one of those conversations where it can just go on and on. So, so happy uh, to have it, uh, to have you back. And the last time we talked about slowification and in particular, I was happy to say, introduce what I'm excited about it, which is, this is a, a language that I hope that our audience can use uh, to bring to leadership, non-technical leadership about the value of slowing down to take time to deliberately learn. There's two other principles, and you, we talked about a couple of them last time. We talked about a little bit about simplification. So I hope we can talk about simplification and amplification. It, let's let's get into simplification here. You you talked about it a bit in terms of you have this uh, um, the in the book you're using a metaphor. You're 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 um, you're re renovating. You and Steve <laughs> are in charge of renovating a Victorian hotel, and. Uh, 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 you've, you found some of the classic problems of architecture, of coupling, and uh, the the uh, deliberate or the un, the unexpected outcome of of uh, the, the practice of expediting. You know, basically how you could really make a mess. And you talked about it, some of the the principles to uh, to simplify the situation. Um, can you can you let's you have three um, practices that you really you distilled, if I remember this correctly, in simplification. Can you tell us about those? Yeah, for the uh, nerds like us and the nerdy audience, right? Uh, so the first is slowification. You move work from uh, the production environment and you shift it temporarily to planning and practice where it's, where it's safer, right? You can learn. Uh, the second um, uh, technique mechanism around simplification changes the nature of the problem so that they are easier to solve. And so there's really three ways to split it. One is, uh, and they both deal with taking a big problem and then dividing them up in different ways. So the first uh, way that you can divide things up is uh, through incrementalization. So, you know, the notion of like, instead of solving it all at once waterfall style, we do it in slices, right? So that should be very familiar. Anyone in an agile incremental uh, thing, <laughs> we'll kind of recognize, you know, why that's good, small batches. Um, so, uh, so that's, that's the first one. And the second two are so interesting to me that we touched on last week, which was uh, one is we modularize things, right? So more teams can work in parallel. Um, and so this is kind of a one way of partitioning. And the second way is the exact same thing, but for sequential processes. Um, and so when you have interdependent steps, there are ways to partition those so that we can gain independence of action. And so that's like an assembly line, the Toyota production system, you know, they're all enabling independence of action. And so the store, the, the, I think the most famous example um, of modularization was the Amazon um, API rearchitecture in the early 2000s. And yeah, and the famous memo from, from Jeff Bezos, right? You know. Yeah, exactly. Or, or even maybe the more famous Steve Yegi. Steve Yegi <laughs> to his description of it. You know, uh, if you, I want you all doing this by next week, you know, or you're fired. <laughs> yeah. Right? So fantastic. The, which, and, the, and the thing was, you can remember if this correctly, any two teams can only talk to each other through their public API. Like that was it. That that's the law, right? Uh, and and so yeah, you know, it was just 
I can tell you, it was so rewarding for that. Uh, I mean, I had studied that case study over the last decade many, many times. It showed up in the DevOps handbook, but I actually learned a ton in the last year and a half. Um, and so if I were to retell it, uh, it's that in the late 1990s, life was pretty easy at Amazon. You know, they have, uh, you know, everything that e-commerce that would have, shopping cart team, product page team, you know, returns, inventory, right? All those things. And then you have two um, product teams that they have, books and music. And so, you know, life is good. You can do hundreds of deployments per day, high, you know, success rate of uh, doing deployments. But then as you start adding, you know, more and more product categories, like Becoming the everything store. <laughs> everything store, right? By not, not early, you know, 2001, they have 35 different categories, including, <laughs> including clothing. So books and music, you have like one SKU, right? Uh, clothing, you have uh, 50 SKUs, right? You know, size, variety, gender, <laughs> color. Yeah, yeah. And apparently every one of those required a database schema change. And that's what actually caused multi-day problems at uh, Amazon. At any rate, um, so you have like now the e-commerce teams, right? On one axis, and you have 35 different product category teams <laughs> on the Y axis, all of which have to communicate and coordinate. And it led to this ridiculous situation where the Amazon digital teams, Kindle, video, music, for them to fulfill and get an order through the pipeline, they had to provide a physical shipping address, <laughs> which is oh. <laughs> kind of strange. Yeah. Um, and so Werner Vogels, in this article I've cited many, many times, there was this phrase that he said, um, those digital teams went to the ordering teams, 60 of them, and said, could you please you know, make it so they won't have to provide a shipping address? And they said, no, we haven't budgeted for it, right? And now they were stuck. Yeah. And so this is why, uh, which is one example of the massive amount of communication coordination that was required to even get small things done. Um, and another marker of this is that, you know, they were siloed between dev and ops uh, and they had this coordination cost. So the number of deployments went from hundreds a year down to tens. Most deployments did not finish. Can I just focus on something you just said, Gene? Because I think it's be something easy for people to miss. As you were describing it and the database changes, right, that sounds very much like a technical problem. Right. And I think a lot of people will hear this through it. You know, our audience will tend to hear it through a technical filter. Yeah. But then you added something else. You said they went around to talk to all the teams. Right. And so <laughs> now we have the social part. Right. And this is kind of like the Conway's law kind of situation where there's a there's a connection between the architecture and the organization. And I think it's natural for technologists to often think about the technical side of the problem. And they often miss about how that introduces costs at the social side. So this is the social technical system. And that what you're describing here doesn't just cause uh, improvements in the technical side. It also leads to improvements on the social side. And it's yeah. the, the whole system that improves. It is exactly the same as the movers and painters, is that the layer three social circuitry was not able to do what needed to get done <laughs> because of uh, you know the layer one and two problems, right? It was inadequate. That's right. So, so what do they do about it? They said, uh, every team should be a two pizza team. Everyone should be able to work independently, to, be wor uh, to work on Amazon's biggest problems. They, they can deliver value to the customers without the need to communicate and coordinate. We want more doers, less coordinators. Yes. And that's what led to the famous uh, memo that Steve Yegi uh, you know, uh, <laughs> reconstructed so brilliantly, right? Uh, that said, you know, every team must uh, coordinate only through service interfaces, APIs, uh, and therefore 
liberate and create independence of action between teams. So that led to one monolithic code base to hundreds to thousands. And that's how they're doing 136,000 deployments a day by 2014. Yeah. Amazing. Now you, you, you mentioned that there's the, the, the way of, um, can we think of a similar example for the linearization of the um, ones where there's interdependent steps? I yeah. Think that one is going to be, I think, even more surprising to people. I don't think they have as much reference point for that. Yeah. So there's something really kind of, in fact, I, you and I have talked often and marveled at this very strange, amazing thing that is a hallmark of the Toyota production system, which is how is it that you can have such a high throughput system, you know, generating 5,000 cars per day, but they also can do 5,000 and down cord pulls per day, right? <laughs> and somehow, uh, I mean, it should not be possible. And yet the reason they're able to do that is that that too is a modular, it has modular characteristics because every and on cord pull that happens at the edge, um, you know, you have 55 seconds to resolve the issue before it causes uh, the next level of hierarchy to be mobilized, right? So a line segment might get stopped. And then that might turn into a set of line segments get stopped that then might cause another escalation that causes a larger segment to potentially the entire uh, assembly line um, uh, grinding to a halt. But that does not happen in most cases because uh, it has modular properties just like you would see at Amazon. So one is for part problems that have been partitioned by space and the other ones are the ones partitioned by time. And so just to boil it down like to movers and painters, if you can define the handoffs very precisely between uh, the movers removing furniture, painters starting, painters finishing, and painters signaling that the furniture can come back in, you now can have independence of action between the movers and painters, which just like we can liberate and create independence of action for teams at Amazon, we can do so for people participating in sequential activities, of which to me, I think the most surprising I wish I had, we had made this more clear in the book, but th this is continuous integration and test. Like yeah. we, it liberates um, the build engineers from having to coordinate with the security engineers and the QA uh, and the Q quality engineers, the security engineers, so they can all work independently and enabling developers to work independently. Yeah, and I think you know, for, for people who want to hear more about that view, Investments Unlimited, I think does a, a, a great job of laying out an environment uh, where you get all of that stuff integrated, right? And and you have now the needs of security and audit and everything else being met in the same way that's actually liberating and you know a better development experience for the developers, which is an unintuitive result, I think, for a lot of people who think about security and audit as things are going to be slowing them down, adding costs, adding delays. But actually, in the the proof here of sort of the uh, improvement of the system. Uh, from having that all be integrated and yep. cohesive. So so maybe just to nerd out one last time on this. So it's just <laughs> for me very, uh, for me it's kind of marvelous to say, yeah, this is a, it's very satisfactory because these are orthogonal, uh, right? We covered now the temporal dimension yeah. and the spatial dimension. There's not a lot of dimensions left. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you got space and time <laughs> um, all living under, um, uh, under simplification. Yeah. Now you use the uh, the, the uh, example of the uh, anion cord pole, and and so which is for people who don't know the anion cord is the thing at the Toyota factories where you pull it and 
people think about, oh, it'll stop the line. But as you explained, like it's no, it's a tiered system that actually, you know, you, you pull the cord and you initially get help from a local work group supervisor. And then you can, if it's not resolved, it then escalates and it can eventually stop the line. I think this is a good uh, uh, connection to your third principle here in rewiring, which is amplification. Yes. Right? <laughs> Tell us about amplification and the role it plays in the social technical circuitry. Right. So slowification is kind of based on the Kahneman Tversky thinking fast and slow, right? Uh, um, simplification is based on, you know, modularity, uh, even option theory, right? You know, independence of action creates amazing uh, benefits. And then amplification, actually, we harken back to uh, Claude Shannon and information theory and, and uh, uh, Nyquist um, and saying that really what we want in any good system is we need to amplify weak signals of failure um, so we can act decisively upon it so that we can prevent bad things from happening, enable quicker detection and prevention and recovery. Um, and it's just this kind of wonderful, uh, for me, it was just riveting to see the Southwest Airlines holiday um, crisis that they had at the end of 2002, where um, you know they had uh, winter storm Elliot, uh, all the airlines have to cancel flights, but something very strange happens, which is that every airline was able to uh, uh, move quickly recover, to, yeah. yeah, recover. And Southwest Airlines continue to get worse. And it turns out that the reason for this was that, um, as was widely written, was the crew scheduling system, where uh, at the end of each day, uh, whenever a pilot wasn't where they were supposed to be, they would have to call a, a phone number uh, to say where the plane and the crews were. And they have to wait on hold for you know half hour or scores of hours, right? And so by the time the next morning came around, the planes weren't where they were supposed to be. Yeah. And this is such a great example of a control system that was wildly slower than what was trying to control <laughs> the production environment. And I thought that was such an amazing metaphor for like uh, how you know this layer three social circuitry control system right is an information system, and it was like a physical. This was a physical metaphor for this. So for me, it was just uh, amazing. And I think you actually, uh, um, I, I, I was familiar with cloud channel information theory, and uh, uh, but I had missed one of the things that you have in the book that was one of my big aha moments, which was the sampling rate required <laughs> by the control system. Can you explain this? Yeah, so Harry Nyquist and Claude Shannon, the doctors, uh, Harry Nyquist and Claude Shannon, uh, uh, they have this amazing proof that shows that says the receiver has to sample at twice the rate of the fastest signal uh, that, that the sender is going to um, send. And so kind of a proof point is imagine a sender sending a sine wave. Um, and if you only sample at the period, you will only hear one note. So it's just <laughs> an audio signal, right? <laughs> right. And, and so like if you want you – so there are some very strict requirements of how fast the receiver must sample in order to get a certain message around. And so the Southwest Airlines was what happens when you know it gets wildly behind or cannot send information, cannot get generated, transmitted, received, and acted upon fast enough. And uh, so clearly, this has some electromagnetic uh, you know <laughs> analogs. But another kind of aspect of this is. We can imagine systems where no one can actually tell bad news, that uh, somehow the quote, culture of the organization ensures that any signal that isn't good news is stifled, 
ex maybe even extinguished entirely. And so part of the job of the uh, leader is to create a layer three social circuitry where even the weakest, faintest signals of danger can be amplified so they can be acted upon. I want to bring these two things together because I think this, so, because on the one hand you're saying, so they can have these very weak signals you want to amplify. On the second, your control sample needs, your control system needs to be sampling at twice the rate of the underlying activity. Okay. I'll put those two things together. Yeah. Now, I think a very common practice in a lot of organizations are we maybe have a weekly meeting, maybe a monthly meeting to review the plan, right? And this is the place where the project manager is going to say, well, where are we? And you have the stakeholders in the room and you have people who might be senior enough to put their weight behind bad news or maybe not, right? And this is the, the question, do things get extinguished or not? That's a cultural elements you know we and you i think you talked about the um uh, space shuttle uh, disaster where uh, um, people were trying to bring out uh, uh, the possibilities of what the foam strike would have done and we need to go and you know uh, visualize the the shuttle but you have project management saying no because they're worried about uh, dynamics so they're squelching it but there's also there's so this combination both of of visibility and frequency and so, and this is my thing is that so commonly people will have a weekly planning meeting and it's like, well, gosh, you're, you know, you, you can only really then have input on things that happen on the, on the cadence of every fortnight of every two <laughs> <That's> weeks. <right. laughs> and the, you know, a lot of organizations, maybe that's fine, but I know the organizations I'm working with are often talking about what are we going to get done this week? Well, if you want to know what's going to be done this week, you can't just have a weekly meeting, right? That's right. like, the, there's a disconnect. If you're thinking about a weekly cycle, you can't just, you need to meet at least twice. It's a sort of- Right, twice a week, right? Yeah. <laughs> In order for to have a corrective action, right? You have to be able to receive the signal at twice the rate of which you're trying to act upon. And it, and it actually, some of the best projects I've worked on had a really interesting characteristic. Some of the ones that were most fun for me. And you know what it was? We would meet in the morning, do the sort of morning standup, and we would have a daily demo at the end of the day. Oh. We, we had sampling twice a day <laughs> where we could be then very close to the work, very close to alignment and be very uh, fast reacting to what came up. Uh, so it, it, it gave me sort of this mathematical support for the, my visceral experience. Like you talk about parsimony, like does the theory validate lived experience and, and, and the intuition you've dealt over time. And that was one of the elements that stood out. Uh, so that was, that was fantastic. In fact, can I add one more dimension to uh, add more color to this? And so like, what would cause you to increase the frequency of these kind of uh, reporting signals? And uh, it was actually Admiral John Richardson, uh, former chief of Naval Operations. He said in the Andy Grove High Output Management book, right? He said, you know, if the leader of a certain task or project has never done it before, um, you know, then you probably want to up the frequency. If the type of problem being solved is so novel, that's never been solved by anyone, up the frequency. If it's highly consequential, that has, you know, terrifically bad um, things that happen, if something, if mistakes are made, you got to up the frequency versus routine activities where, you know, this person has actually done it a ton of times before, there's probably not as high of a need for such high frequency reporting. So I just think all of these things, as you said, kind of give us a, um, it says why you know, we make certain decisions in these lived experiences. Yes, that's right. And it, it's really great there because you make it very clear that this is not dogma. This is not one size fits all. The, the, for me, the whole set of practices here, the, the uh, slowification, 
the simplification, the amplification are like a recipe book. Um, you know, actually, there's a recipe book that's like called the ratio book that actually just gives you ratios <laughs> of ingredients. And it's kind of like that. It's going to, you're kind of saying, go and um, you know, use these things to figure out and customize it to, to your thing. And given your circumstances, <laughs> what, what's the right recipe? I just bought, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm buying this book right now. I love ratios. In fact, I was just going to go there next. So Steve, when he learned about the, the Nyquist-Shannon sampling yeah. theorem, uh, he had a similar reaction. He's like, oh my gosh. And the connection he made was, so when you have the, not only do you want to increase the frequency when you kind of are pushing these different uh, dimensions, you also want to have a smaller ratio of um, leader to uh, person on the line. In other words, the more dynamic the situation, uh, the smaller team you want to have, because that too is a buffer um, where the, the leader can actually jump in and use their experience to help, right? Um, whereas if it's all routine, all exactly the same, uh, then you, know, you can actually expand the ratio um, of you know, associates to leader. Yeah. Yeah, we, that's and that's uh, that's a really interesting part. I, I thought I had not made that connection myself, but when you say it out loud, I would say like what you're adding is what's the ratio of metacognition to work, <laughs> right? right? And and uh, so that 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 fits very well. And um, you know, and it, it, it's it again, it's really rewarding for me that, that as I said, this is like validating so many other concepts. And I just the, the last thing I say on amplification is reminds me back of the early days of agile. One of the things that I remember, I think I got from Brian Merrick, uh, was big visible charts, and um, where you know how can we how can we have shared facts for, with, with everyone about where we are? How can we you know amplify that information so that you, we have these shared facts and we can say, oh, this is a problem. This is this is something that we all know about. Um, and actually, I learned that honestly as a child. My father worked in manufacturing engineering. And they had a problem at their company where they were not shipping enough units. And he made a control chart that showed a burnup line and say, well, if we want to ship 30 units this month, you know, where are we on the line? And they had terrible, terrible trouble. But somehow making this control chart that gave everyone shared visibility allowed them to do a much better job of coordinating around the problem, which is why you amplify, right? You amplify it to bring awareness, bring joint problem solving. And I learned that I had the good fortune to learn that literally as a child, <laughs> and uh, and to see this now explained in the framework was very very satisfying. Can I add one other sort of like aha moment that yeah. uh, shows up in the amplification chapter? So uh, yeah, that notion of shared consciousness uh, shows up in the book Team of Teams, um, and that that too is uh, requires some amplification. And sometimes when you have like say movers and painters, now suppose you have very distrustful relationships between the movers and painters and you need them to coordinate together. One of the most powerful things you can do is to uh, embed a mover in a painting team and vice versa. <laughs> and one of the best examples of this that I learned about in the process of uh, the book was uh, the Apollo Capcoms, the capsule communicators uh, in the US space program. And so uh, the it turns out like whenever there's an astronaut crew in space, yeah. the only one at mission control who can talk with them are these capsule communicators. And so they are astronauts. Yeah. They are not just any astronauts. They're the people who trained the astronauts or as a backup crew. And the reason they do that is that when you have a very uh, thin um, channel that's very sporadic and communication matters a lot, the best thing you can do to 
maximize the bandwidth between them is you put an astronaut on both sides of the channel. Yeah. <laughs> and so <laughs> uh, yeah, it sh just the shared experience the, the, to have that, uh, th that, that the shared points of reference that will Absolutely. make things so much more efficient. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Making, making the most of the situation, uh, you know, that limit, that scarce resource of bandwidth. Yeah. Exactly. And I just, uh, as Alan Kay once said, uh, for very important messages, you do not send a message, you send a messenger. Ah. And so as the, <laughs> as the designer of the socio parts of the socio-technical system, there are some interfaces that you want highly coupled. And if you can't put them side by side, you put, uh, you know, uh, essentially an avatar on proxies on both sides to maximize um, every bit of communication uh, between them. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, Gene, I say this has been hugely fun for me. I really hope that our uh, listeners, if they've enjoyed it half as much as I have, then this will probably be one of their favorite episodes. Thank you so much for your generosity in here being with us for three weeks. Um, where can people find out more about you, about wiring them in an organization, the more about these ideas, what, what should they do? Oh, yes. Um, I would say go to itrevolution.com. Uh, that is the publisher of all these books and the Enterprise Technology Leadership Summit. Uh, wiring the Winning Organization is available at uh, the your retailer, your favorite book retailers. And uh, I have to say, Jeffrey, thank you so much for this time and also for all the feedback and encouragement that you gave throughout the writing process. Uh, I cannot tell you how much I've uh, so much appreciated and how much your fingerprints are all over the book. It's been my genuine pleasure, Gene. It's so much fun to talk to someone else who takes ideas seriously <laughs> and it delights in, in sharing it and the discovering the aha moments. So it's been fantastic. And, uh, you know, so thank you so much. And thank you to all our listeners. Uh, in, you know, this has been another episode of Troubleshooting Agile. If you'd like to hear more from us, uh, then go to agileconversations.com. You can find us on Twitter and email. All the information for Gene will be in the show notes. Uh, so if you're driving, you know, you can, we'll have everything <laughs> there. Don't, don't try to write down itrevolution.com. We'll put the links in there uh, and links to favorite retailers. And you can pick that up. And uh, you can, of course, hear more from us next week on, uh, when we'll be back on your favorite podcast player for another edition of Troubleshooting Agile. Thank you so much, Gene. Thank you. Thank you.